even if I say something like that will get me fired or whatever. Not you that could just, I, not you that could I will. just mark it later and we'll take it out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, if or you, we'll just put it on loop and just make that. I the don't anticipate episode. that happening. <laughs> but or we'll play that part louder than everything else and cut out all the things you want us to keep. <laughs> Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimore, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 86 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like recently released lefty Mark Mulder, often reaches just a little too far, resulting in self-inflicted injuries that probably could have been avoided. You have to give Mulder credit for attempting to resurrect his once-promising career this spring, and you really have no choice but to give us a lot of credit for the fantastic show that we have on tap for you this week. We are hepped up about this show, Sam. Mm-hmm. Excited. Do you hear that sound? That's my toes tapping. <laughs> In a minute, we will bring you our most popular recurring segment, the Tito Landrum Franchise Report. Now, a cursory glance at Tito's pedestrian career statistics might, understandably, cause you to mentally categorize him as one of the many revelers in the mid-80s goon parade of hapless Orioles outfielders, and then proceed to move along with your day. In doing so, however, you'd be overlooking one of the truly sweet moments in Oriole history, which occurred in the top of the 10th inning at Comiskey Park, during Game 4 of the 1983 American League Championship Series. The Birds led the series three games to zero going into Game 4, but White Sox starter Britt Burns refused to allow his team to roll over, pitching nine shutout innings against the Orioles, and in a move rarely seen around the major leagues anymore. Burns actually came out to pitch the 10th. He retired the first batter of the inning before Tito Landrum stepped to the plate, and... Well, you know what? I'll let the, the broadcasters take it from here. That's the eighth strikeout for Burns. So important for him to retire Shelby and Landrum. That way he wouldn't have to face Ripken and or Murray with anybody on base. That's maybe his last hitter. Even though he's pitched so well, Landrum, not the deep threat. But when you get to Ripken, Murray, Renneke after that, but let's see what Larusa decides. This ball is what blasted by Tito Landrum. What did I say? It is gone. How about that? Tito Landrum begins the year at Louisville in the Cardinal chain, and he's on cloud nine right now with birds of a different feather, the Baltimore Orioles. He had one home run in 41 at-bats during the regular season. Tito Landrum has put the Orioles within half an inning of the World Series as the pitching changes. The Orioles, made. of course, went on to win the 1983 World Series, rewarding Tito for his heroics by trading him back to the Cardinals during the following <laughs> offseason. Many have forgotten Tito Landrum, but not the Baltimoreans, which is why we pause each week to honor his proud legacy. I gotta tell you that YouTube clip gave me a little bit of the goosebumps. Just, uh, just, just a little, little, just a little prickle a under little, the skin. Little, little, little goose pimple there. 
We'll also, of course, check in with this week's guest, writer and Baltimore native Mac Montandon, who infuses his work on jetpacks, Tom Waits, punk rock, and more with a deep and abiding passion for our perpetually somewhat broken birds. But none of that, morons, nothing in that steamy, teetering pile of topics and tangential connections is going to make any goddamn sense whatsoever (laughs) without the necessary cultural context for the number 86, which my colleague Alan Smith is here to provide. Speaking of proud legacies like that of Tito Landrum, this week's episode, number 86, is dedicated to Mr. Jake English of the Bird's Eye View podcast. Bird's Eye View is just one of the many amazing podcasts that are part of the Baltimore Sports Support Network. Check them all out at baltimoresportsupport.com slash network. It was because of Jake that I found out that the number 86 is the approximate number of ethnic minority groups in the Central African Republic. Now, how did I make this particular connection? Well, let me tell you, Baltimoreans. In response to the astounding fact that the New York Yankees have committed to spending more than half a billion dollars in contracts in this offseason alone, Mr. English suggested that this number was approximately the same as the GDP of Norway. While this is not in fact true, uh, the GDP of Norway is closer to 530 billion than 530 million, but eh, you know, digits here or there, it did get me to thinking. How much money have these teams, these big spending teams, actually committed to spending in the long term? We see individual contracts, and occasionally we get sort of how much they've locked up in this offseason. But if you add up all the contracts that the New York Yankees are currently on the hook for, either past or future, so in this uh, measure, A-Rod, because he's currently on contract, would count, you get to the number $1,271,900,000. That appears, after some back-of-the-envelope calculations, to be the largest such number in the Major League Baseball, which is good, (laughs) because it's a giant fucking number. And the Dodgers come in second at $1,076,175,000. This means that if you add the New York Yankees and the LA Dodgers' total money committed in contracts, not counting player options or buyouts or extra years, you're looking at a cool two-bill, $348,075,000. Which, according to the fact sheet from the IMF and World Bank, is not Norway, but it is just a little more than the GDP of the Central African Republic. Now, according to those same tracking sources, the population of that country is about 4,422,000 peoples. Surely, the nominal gross domestic product of 4.5 million people when taken in the aggregate, must rise above the contractual obligations of two professional baseball teams, right? It has to be. But no. And this is where this story gets distinctly non-comical, because according to rough estimates, approximately 11% of the population of the Central African Republic, aged between 15 and 49, is HIV positive. At the end of 2013, the beginning of this year, ethnic conflicts, mostly related to the majority Christian population having a beef with the minority Muslim population, have resulted in more than 600 deaths, and a quarter of the country is currently quote-unquote displaced. Many international observers are cautioning that what is happening right now, as I record these words, in the Central African Republic, could be the beginnings of a genocide. I confess to you, Baltimoreans, that I don't know where the Central African Republic is. Which is interesting, because I am an African history major in college. I studied this shit in undergrad, and I still can't exactly point to it on a map. 
if I don't know where it is, and I didn't know any of these things were happening there, uh, you know, how about the average human being who is watching a baseball game right now and has no idea, not only that there are a certain number of displaced human beings who are being shunted around the country, but even that the country exists or where it is. The African violence apathy thing is actually a really well-studied phenomenon, and one that I won't dedicate too much time to right here. Suffice to say that it's actually completely understandable and even totally rational that we, sitting in Florida next week and watching a baseball game and drinking beer, have literally no way to put that sort of situation in any context with our own lives. It becomes very quickly completely unimaginable, and because we can't even imagine what it must be like to be a refugee in a war-torn Central African Republic, we just have trouble empathizing with that situation in any way. Still, isn't it kind of amazing to think that the amount that the Dodgers and Yankees are committing to paying a few people over the next handful of years is larger than everything that a country is producing? And isn't it amazing that that country that is smaller than Texas contains approximately 86 different ethnic groups, each of which speak their own language? That's 86 different languages being spoken in that area. It makes my particular monolinguistic head just spin on its rocker. So, on to spring training, on to episode 86. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Tito Landrum Franchise Report, where each week we take the three hottest news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them a ranking, ranging from strikeout to home run. Item number one on the report this week, the Baltimore Suns' Dan Connolly reports that Manny Machado called his 2014 salary of $519,000, quote, disappointing. <laughs> Machado did add that he'd be open to being an Oriole for the entirety of his career in other comments, but it sounds like the finance department at the warehouse has introduced a bit of crimson into Manny's not unsizable ears. Alan, how should we feel about this? Now, I'm going to go a little bit different than the intro that I just read, and I'm going to go ahead and back Manny on this one. I'm going to go with this is a single. Uh, because it doesn't particularly, um, you know, it, it shows to me that Manny knows that he is going to be a great player, and it shows a certain amount of confidence. Now, I think this dude is a very well-spoken, like, chilled-out dude. He doesn't whine a lot. He's not, like, uh, he's not a, a, a diaper dandy, to use the <laughs> Dick Vital term. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's not like a lot of these guys who are coming up at 19 and sort of feel as though the world owes them a whole lot. And I think he's gone out and performed at a really high level and become, in some ways, the face of Major League Baseball with Trout and um, Brandon Har uh, and Harper. Um, what's Harper's first name? Bryce. Bryce, motherfucker. Um, it's been a long time since I've watched some baseball, huh? Think of think of the canyon as in the gap between his talent level and that of most humans. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> That's a mnemonic that is sure to stick in my head. Um, <laughs> for some reason, Bryce Harper didn't. Uh, but, you know, he, he's like he's in that level, right? He's up there and he's being paid. And Mike Trout did just get a million dollars. So, you know, it's understandable that I think he's a little bit like, give me mine. Um, 
and it doesn't really bother me because I think that means he's like he feeling he's feeling like his knees okay and he's gonna go out and make a lot of money. Okay. Um, I also would say that frankly, there's nothing like stepping on first base and seeing. 20 years of making millions and millions of dollars flash before your eyes to make you be like, I'd like to get paid now when I know I can perform because life is uncertain and eat dessert first. This is the only thing I've done with my life. I've recently gotten engaged to Yonder Alonso's sister and I had better <laughs> make better sure that produce. I can produce here. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, as I've said before, Alan Smith, that's a sunny outlook, and I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to disagree with you. I think this is a brushback pitch. I think this Uh-oh. is a little bit of the chin Uh-oh. music. A little chin music. I think this is uh, Randy Johnson throwing behind a left-handed batter to send a message, uh, which is what I would like to verbally do to Manny Machado right now. <laughs> Manny, I love you to death. I agree with Alan. I think that you are going to be the face of the franchise for years to come. It's not classy to complain about your salary. It's really not. It's not a classy thing to do, especially when your salary is, let me just check the notes, $519,000, which, by the way, is not including a $100,000 bonus, which you received for uh, the, I think it was called the Platinum Glove Award, which is like for being the best fielder on planet Earth. (laughs) Um, Look, Manny Machado is a generational talent. We know this. However, Mike Trout, as you mentioned, is receiving a $1 million salary this year after putting up two consecutive seasons of wins against replacement totals that haven't been seen in the Western Hemisphere (laughs) for 40 years. Manny Machado did not do that last year. He basically didn't show up for the last two months of the season. And that's not to say that he's not going to correct those tendencies going forward in his career. But I think when we look at his first full season in the major leagues, it's a decidedly mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a bag that I would happily take at third base for the next 15 years, even if he doesn't move the needle forward at all. His defense alone is worth any meager offense that he pulls up he's basically our own personal andrelton simmons <laughs> but with the higher upside you can't talk a mike trout game which mike trout doesn't talk by right. the way you can't talk a mike trout game until you put up the mike trout numbers you just can't do it and the orioles have demonstrated that when somebody in dan duquette's terms rings the cash register like adam jones did you get the big extension yeah so, Manny, put a sock in it, <laughs> get that smile back on your face, and go out and do what we know you can do, and you're going to get your money. Yeah, it's going to come. Yeah. It's going to come. It's going <laughs> to come. Which is why I think at the end of the day, uh, a lot of this is much ado about nothing, because we're all going to have forgotten he said this in about a month, and, you know, <laughs> right. we'll be fine as long as he's playing third base. Item number two. On this week's Tito Landrum Franchise Report concerns a piece from the website Fangraphs. Its author, Jeff Sullivan, calculated the difficulty of every MLB team's schedule based on the Fangraphs version of wins against replacement, and he concludes that the Orioles have the most difficult schedule in all of baseball. Sam, should we panic yet? I would say that this is a Chris Davis breaking ball in the dirt to Adrian Gonzalez generating a strikeout. Uh, What I mean to say by that 
is that, uh, yes, the odds are long for the Orioles having a successful season. However, we knew that already. I think that this is a bit of an example of Fangraphs falling victim to something that I think a lot of analytically minded websites would never admit that they do, but I think it belies a really like hardcore baseball fan impatience for the beginning of the regular season <laughs> because we are done with things that make sense to talk about and yeah. we still have two weeks left before baseball counts here i made this giant spreadsheet <laughs> where i took into account an absolutely staggering amount of totally theoretical numbers and have simulated the entire season <laughs> and come up with a completely hypothetical outcome that makes me feel frustrated ultimately because we're not going to know really what happened until October. Like, if everybody at this point in spring training is like, oh, uh, the games are starting to be shown on TV. Oh, uh, the teams are running out at least half a lineup that might be what actually <laughs> happens on opening day. Well, oh, I still have to wait another month? I don't understand. <laughs> so we're going to give it uh, a, a an actual ranking of, of youthful enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever your baseball equivalent of that is. We're sure. giving it one bat boy. <laughs> Well, I, I actually think that it's a wild pitch with nobody on base, <laughs> okay. which is to say I don't think it matters at all uh, because 16 pounds of muscle that Nick Marquez just put on during the offseason could be yeah. worth three wins. Yeah. Like, yeah. who the fuck knows? Right, right, right. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is the kind of, this is where, to me, people are looking and spending so much time trying to carve out margins of things. Like, I get the fact that Ubaldo Jimenez is worth more wins than whoever we had in our fifth in our fifth slot last year, right? Like the, the sort of poo-poo platter of people we were rolling out for our fifth starter. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. But calculating the entire wins against replacement of the rest of the teams in the league and then matching them up against us seems to me to be, like, stupid. It's just dumb. Right. Like, what matters to me way more than that is we all know that over the course of a season, the Yankees are going to have a one 10 games period where they're unhittable. Like they, they're untouchable. Like they're gonna they're gonna win ten games in a row, and the Red Sox are gonna have some period of time where they lose twelve out of fourteen, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, the Red Sox are falling off the wagon." This happens every year. Yep. What matters way more than the overall strength of the team is when you actually get to play them. If you get two four game series against the Yankees when they're when they're hot, that's bad. <laughs> if yeah. you get if you get two four game series when Tanaka hasn't quite figured it out yet, CC Sabathia has lost some on his fastball, and Ellsbury happens to be dinged up, then you're talking. Like that's right. the only thing to me that ver that matters in terms of strength of schedule. And I think that this is a it's it's one of those statistics that like, you know, it doesn't matter to me that a wild pitch like let it be wild, <laughs> let him go somewhere <laughs> and like you know see if you can get a strike. Finally, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, our third <laughs> item on this week's report: uh. the audacity of scope. The organization's top infielding prospect is hitting the cover off the ball so far this spring, posting a line of 520, and these are these are real numbers, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> 529, 556, 882. When asked if Scope is making manager Buck Showalter's decision about who will open the season as the starting second baseman hard, Showalter replied, quote, he may be making it easy. Smith, what do you say? Would you like to see Scope at second base on opening day? Absolutely. I'm ready. Let's do this thing. You're ready. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready because we, I think uh, I'm going to give this a um, 
a pinch hit for a pitcher. <laughs> okay. Because who is he replacing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's oh a pinch. Boy. It's a pinch hit single. I I think that Scope has shown for a couple of different times in a couple of different ways that he has the potential to be a major league player. We've been thinking about him as the man of the future for long enough now that it's time to put him in there and see if he can pull a Manny and just sort of fit in at a major league level. And I think that you sort of bring him up, you make him the opening day starter, and then you play Flaherty every third day, which is about what Ryan Flaherty should be playing anyway. I think Ryan Flaherty is a very good backup um, infielder. He can spell Hardy. He can spell Machado as Machado is trying to get his feet underneath him again. And he can spell Scope if, you know, his eyes get a little bit too big and he's a little bit strung out. But why not take that shot? Like, what's, what's the downside? I think that the same thing that was true for Manny when he came up is true now, which is... This is a good team, and there are a lot of expectations, but the pressure is going to be on Weeders to see if he can turn it around, Markakis to prove that he's a legitimate outfielder again and can hit the ball, Davis to see that if he can re- repeat, and Adam Jones because he's the star of the team, and no one's going to be looking at our second baseman. We've already penciled him in for being useless, so why not try and see if this kid's got something? All right, all right, all right, all right. That is, again, very compelling. <laughs> uh, yeah, have you ever considered a career in political organizing? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I I was going to give this a home run, Goodbye, home run! but it was hit by Jake Fox in spring training. <laughs> uh, and what I want to say is, uh, fundamentally, I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that a lot of people who are kind of banging the drum for just saying, look at Jonathan Scope's slash line. As a direct result of that, he should be on the opening day roster. It's important to keep in mind that he is putting up these numbers against other minor leaguers and quad a players on other teams who are trying to crack the big league roster although to be fair he was not doing this in uh triple a last year (laughs) or double a (laughs) right he's actually never done this before in his life yeah and and we need to temper our our expectations pretty severely he's never put up good on base numbers in the minor leagues his power numbers have never been particularly remarkable i think there's every reason to think that ryan flaherty is his floor but Brian Roberts may not be his ceiling. We may be looking at a, a hometown Neil Walker type of situation. Now, all of us I will would take, take that. that. <laughs> all of us will take that. But uh, I, I think that if it, it, we should be very hesitant to stamp world beater on the back of Jonathan Scope's jersey. Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree with that. Uh, I still think that, again, it's a question of who he's replacing. I'm still, by the way, totally fine with trading him uh, as part of a package for Billy Butler. <laughs> Although, as was pointed out on Twitter earlier this week when I got a little up in arms about the whole Billy Butler thing, there is actually not anywhere for Billy Butler to play on this team. Uh, oh, we'll, we'll make a space. But that, exactly, that's how I feel. We'll, we'll make that, we'll make that work. I'm there's, not worried about there's it. There's always room for a little bit more breakfast. Yeah, always. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's jump right now to our very awesome interview with Mac Montandon. And we want to tell you, uh, just right off the bat, we had... A fantastic time, arguably better than we deserve to have talking to Mac. Such a good time, in fact, that uh, we're not going to have time on this episode to play you the entirety of our conversation. But don't worry, you can hear the entirety of our conversation by going over to our SoundCloud page, which is at soundcloud.com slash baltimoreans, and clicking on the Mac Montandon interview file. Or you can go to www.bmorons.com and get there that way. But more on that later. 
Folks, we sit here each and every week drinking our Jefferson's Reserve 90-proof podcasting juice and running our jaws about the various ways we'd like to see things done in the fair city of Baltimore when it comes to baseball. The fact is, however, Baltimoreans, the, the, the sad fact is that we couldn't possibly be less qualified to do that. Not only are neither Sam or I actually from Baltimore, but we also couldn't hit the broadside of Rush Limbaugh's shimmering jowls with a bat, let alone do battle with Uncle Charlie. Our guest today also can't do those things. <laughs> but that didn't stop him from showing up for an open Orioles tryout one fateful morning when he was in high school and putting his money where his mouth was. His mouth, interestingly enough, being recently that same evening where a certain amount of adult beverages were, meaning he didn't do all that well at the tryout. But that's okay. He wrote a lovely piece about the experience for a website called The Modern Spectator, and through that article and lots of other writing, he's gone on to much more success than Alan or I's fandom has ever gotten us. Mac Montandon. He is an editor for Fast Company's website and an editor-at-large for Mental Floss Magazine. You can find his works in the New York Times, the New York Magazine, and Gawker. He wrote a whole freaking book about jetpacks. And coming soon, we might be getting a sneak peek of his feature-length film set in Baltimore, Maryland. Mo mostly at Walden High School in Baltimore, set circa about eight, 1986. It's called Charm City, and it's fueled by punk rock, hot prep school field hockey stars, LSD, the Club Charles, the Loft, and many other things to make a moron's heart sing. Mac, welcome to Baltimoreans. Thanks for having me. I, I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> Trust me, a few minutes before you got here, smoldering hole in the ground. Uh, it's really... It's really been... I did get a, a, a slight weird science whiff <laughs> when I walked in, so now, it doesn't surprise me. Speaking of when you walk in, walked <clears throat> in, I want to let our listeners know that you entered uh, my home carrying with you an 8x10 glossy autographed photograph of Eddie Murray, <laughs> which qualifies you for entry across my threshold. <laughs> well... Uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a special item as you can see, and as your listeners, I'm sure, can close their eyes and imagine how special it is. Um, <laughs> and I realize only now that um, it's a little cruel to bring it because I'm <laughs> I will be taking it home with me. Um, and I, I was like, No, you won't. <laughs> so yeah, sorry about that. But um, I just thought you know it was my first time on the show, and I could use all the. The good mojo. And no one brings the good mojo like Murray. <laughs> he does look, he does, as Sam was pointing out before, he does look really sad in that photograph. Wistful, maybe. Yeah, I Wistful. mean, I think he was a complicated dude, like especially... <laughs> no one understood him but his sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> Who were often busy whisking rainwater to his thirst. It's a very uh, productive thing, those sideburns. Yeah. <laughs> right, very useful. So... Tell us the story uh, from your from the article that Sam referenced before. Tell us the story about how you went about trying to make the Orioles roster. Uh, yeah, so as Sam <clears throat> mentioned or alluded to, um, it was in high school. It was a house party, um, kind of a John Hughesy scene since it was uh, in the mid '80s, I guess. And um, so the wild suburbs of Baltimore, <laughs> a suburb called Mount Washington, for all you hometown fans, and. Um, <laughs> So there, there had been a few national bohemian beers, uh, drunken as there are these things. And um, so 
that said, I do think like my memory of of these things is is accurate. Um, <laughs> I think the, the main thing or person really that um, that you know ensured that the memory would remain rock solid was um, my ninth grade girlfriend, Dusty Klein, who um, <clears throat> was a gorgeous goth, um, like a very right. sensitive, mean and charming and seductive and mysterious goth. <laughs> um, who, um, yeah, who, by that point we had, we had broken up, but, um, I was, I was far from over. I was still <laughs> fairly obsessed with Dusty Klein. And so when I was at this party and somehow word circulated, you know, there was no texting, there was no tweeting, of course, but somehow nonetheless, we were able to communicate to one another that there was in fact, uh, an open Orioles tryout for the minor league system happening <laughs> in Ocean City, Maryland, which was about, well, at that time of night. You could get there probably in about three hours, two and a half. <laughs> if you're dusty, if you're dusty, Klein, two fifteen. Um, she had a white Mustang and a lot of Jane's Addiction cassettes, and so yeah, I think we got there in in near record time. Um, I don't remember exactly why she agreed to drive me, except that she <laughs> loved an adventure, and she had the keys to a friend's place. So. That was enough. I borrowed a, a glove and I don't think even cleats. I think just a glove, no hat from, you know, the host <laughs> dad's back of his closet. And we hit the road and arrived in Ocean City. In my memory, it was, it was you know, three or four in the morning. Um, the tryouts were somewhere around like eight or nine that morning. So we get there. Good night's sleep. Yeah. <laughs> totally the most restful, productive <laughs> night before the tryout. Got that nice natty bow burn going on in the chest. <laughs> I had all manner of burns everywhere. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it was just, oh God, like it still is like difficult to say these words, but we, you know, we crept through the, the dark house to, and, and just to like shut our eyes for a couple hours before the tryout. And of course I was hoping, you know, everything, I was hoping for fireworks and everything. And, um, and Dusty Klein was not at all. <laughs> and she was exhausted as she should have been after the long drive. And she was she like, I'm just <laughs> here to help you realize your misguided dream. No funny stuff. <laughs> she one said, of your she misguided said dreams. All, <laughs> yeah, one of your many, many, you know, I think that that's pretty much what she said with her eyes was just like, yeah whatever you need to do out here is fine, but keep me out of it. And so, um, <laughs> so she crashed out. I eventually I think fell asleep next to her. And, um, yeah, like before I knew it, that we were up sun up and she drove me to the, to the tryout, not far from the house. We got there somehow magically on time. And her, the, the plan such as it was, was that dusty would, um, sneak into a nearby hotel and, uh, hang out by the pool reading Cosmo <laughs> while I achieved <laughs> stardom um, the diamond um, most the, the dusty part of the plan went flawlessly she uh, <laughs> wished me well and and did her thing which she always managed to execute perfectly and um, and the tryout was um, well it started well actually um, it start for the first like twelve seconds of it. It was incredible. <laughs> Very they, promising yeah. opening <laughs> salvo. <laughs> the first thing they put it, they had us do was um, a, a sprint. Two uh, two of the 
pr- prospects would sprint together at one time. I like that you refer to yourself as prospects. <laughs> Generously <laughs> referring to. Oh, I should mention that actually the other, uh, in my memory, like every other person there, you know, looked like a young, like Jose Canseco or Manny Machado. <laughs> it's probably better. Like they all, yeah, and just were like beefy, beautiful uniforms, like eye smudge the whole deal and here I was like without a hat in like probably like zips tennis shoes or some god awful thing and so yeah the first thing's the sprint not my strong suit um but uh fate smiled on me for those 12 seconds and the guy I was paired up with slipped right out of the gate and went down so I was like well even if my time is terrible at least I'll beat my guy (laughs) yeah um however that wasn't the case. He got he like scrambled to his feet and still beat me to the finish line. <laughs> and the only thing worse than losing the sprint is losing to a guy who slips. I mean, it was like forty yards, like that. <laughs> so essentially, scientifically impossible, and yet it happened. And his so, name was Jim Gentile. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't think I don't think that endeared me to the the coaches who are there, and I and um, I maintain I didn't really get like a fair shake after that. Um, <laughs> I took a few grounders at short, um, which, you know, a couple of years, you know, before that I was, you know, not a terrible, like 11 year old little league shortstop. But at this point on this day, I was, um, I don't know who's the worst <laughs> Oriole shortstop of all time. Well, Kiko Garcia was like a decent fielder. Yeah, that's true. So who's like the worst fielding Oriole shortstop of all time. I was that guy. <laughs> um, I can't think. I fe- Bizarro Mark Belanger. <laughs> exactly. Have we ever had a bad feeling now that I think about it? Um, we've had plenty of terrible other things. Yeah. I think we've always been pretty solid on defense at shortstop. I know. Yep. It's weird. Yep. They haven't been able to get on base, but. Right. Belanger no. batted like 170, but he was still like an all-star because such a great fielder. Um, but I was, yeah, I was Bizarro Belanger that day and every throw was about four feet too short and skipped past the first baseman and uh then the, then we got to batting they didn't even call my name and i i just slunked off with nothing more than a sunburn and bad <laughs> memories and found dusty just looking like exquisitely hot um, in like a white in my memory a white bikini i don't think that can possibly be true but doesn't totally match the goth feel no but i know that's well, all but right. yeah it's true. Like, she contained multitudes. I feel like we're in Brooklyn. <laughs> I can drop a little Whitman. Um, you, you, that is that is arguably more welcome here than on any other baseball <laughs> podcast in the known universe. Yeah. So, th- I mean, that is absolutely true. That Dusty was an interesting and like if you can say all this about like a sixteen-year-old, you know, teenager, high school girl, but she was like really interesting and complicated. And so it's possible um, that it's just not my over. Uh, heated libido that's remembering her <laughs> in a white bikini but in any case I got to the pool she was like flipping through a glossy mag in some color of bikini <laughs> black maybe black and um yeah just looked up and asked like you know how'd it go and I just like didn't know what to say and like it was I feel like it was any number of like Wes Anderson movies or you know <laughs> coming of age movies where there's the shot under the pool where you see the guy flop in and, and the graduate so <laughs> right or the gra- yeah. probably that's a better one where like yeah it's like a submerged existential shot right and that was me and so you know 
I guess now when you say the graduate, like it makes it seem kind of cool. And, <laughs> but at the time, it seemed decidedly not cool. Were I uh, your psychoanalyst, and I'm not, um, nor am I qualified to I am be. I'm soliciting. <laughs> <laughs> Later, give me your rate. If there are any uh, psychoanalysts, aspiring psychoanalysts <laughs> listening, please contact us. Um, not you, Dad. He's actually a shrink. Maybe oh. I'm saying too much now. <laughs> Uh, I do think it's interesting just because what's really interesting about this story, I think, is Dusty. Uh, and it's very interesting that you remember, whether it's true or not, you remember the Mustang being white. You remember the bikini <laughs> being white. Uh, sort of an angel-like figure. Yeah. Um, wow. And Jesus, I've never thought of this before. <laughs> uh, use of the word Jesus, up. notable. <laughs> <laughs> so there was the run of uh, being jilted by the Orioles at that point. They didn't. They didn't recognize your athletic, your latent athletic ability. Uh, how, how did your relationship with the Orioles evolve as you went off to NYU and, and left Baltimore? Um, so yeah, just bef- just a bit to back up for a second. Um, I should also say that the first season I followed um, really any professional sport closely, but especially the Orioles was. 1979 Ah, Um, good year to start man so I think that (laughs) explains a lot and goes a long way towards sort of explaining my ongoing deep fandom but also like complicated feelings because (laughs) I should tell people if you don't know the story of that was the year of Oriole magic that was the year of Lowenstein and Reneke it was the year we were like probably should have you know, finished fourth or fifth, even if there were five teams in the division. But um, whatever number <laughs> whatever the there were in the division, <laughs> we should have been, yeah, there in the basement. But like, they do just a wonderful band of like overachievers and scrappy bastards. And, you know, it was also the time of Wild Bill Hagee. And yeah. you could bring a suitcase full of natty bows, in, <laughs> as he did nightly, to section 34, 33. I can't believe I think it was the roar from 34 from 34. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, right. Weaver in his prime, all that stuff. So, right. I I feel like that, you know, that was the year they they miraculously made it to the world series and we're up three, one against the pirates only to lose. And um, so it was like the perfect, I feel like introduction to not just sports fandom, but especially this team, the Orioles where, um, you know, I think, uh, I just they just really represented the city so perfectly they were um you know no one really considered them a threat no one thought highly of them they were sort of filthy and dangerous bit of an alcohol problem (laughs) an alcohol problem certainly wild substance abusers i think mike flanagan would like smoke and drink and you know we had two packs dan house as a um, closer uh that's how many cigarettes weaver went through nickname yeah (laughs) holy no i know back when like a baseball player's nickname could be tupac stana so (laughs) i mean they yeah they were the city and um they did amazing things and achieved so much and then broke your heart into a million pieces and um so that was that was great i mean this was like you know, for like someone who liked goths and like had a <laughs> sort of sensitive poet soul, I was like, this is awesome. I didn't know sports could be so emotional. And um, so, yeah, that was I, that, that's what did it and hooked me. And then a few years later, they won the World Series. And I was like, wait, not only are they cool, but they win. 
and then they, they stopped. stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah. I should For probably devote my years. emotional <laughs> life to this organization. <laughs> you know, the, the fortunate thing for me as a fan was that those really lean years um, coincided with, you know, going to college and <laughs> wanting to be, some minor distractions. Yeah, like wanting to be in like <laughs> terrible bands and like stay out late and meet girls and drink. So like, there were other things that, um, yeah, took my attention, and I, I, it was it was fine. You know, there was like a part of me that was like dying inside because of the the previous um, fondness and and greatness we'd had. But um, but yeah, like if you had to have lean years, those I think are the right lean years when yeah. you're discovering the greater world. And um, and then yeah, and then it's, now that I'm thinking about it, I've never really, really put this all together. But then the last few years, you know, I've had like young kids and and a great marriage and like you know. Um, now I have like time again. Like yeah. there's nothing to do. <laughs> right. But like after the kids go to bed, but like either read or or watch the Orioles. So or yeah, both. they've been they've <laughs> been like really actually very accommodating. Now that I think of it, to have like competitive, great, compelling, interesting teams at the times of my life when I've been able to pay attention to them. So that's worked out well. I, I think that's a that's a really interesting way of kind of describing the emotional journey that you take. Uh, when you start, when you become a baseball fan very young, uh, I think and have felt for a long time really that the struggles of the team kind of take the place of some things about yourself that you can't really define because there's a clearly delineated structure that you can put them in. You can say, you, like, you're like, I have all these feelings of unfulfillment that I don't understand. Uh, and baseball or any sport allows you to give statistical numeration to those things and uh, get upset about those things because they're understandable. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get older and you realize that it was silly to fixate on those things so much. And you go out and you make your own mistakes and, and you get in touch with yourself as an emotional being. And then as you get older than that, you kind of settle out a little bit and all of a sudden... <laughs> you kind of yearn for simple emotional problems <laughs> of the kind <laughs> that you dealt with when this you were younger. This is really well articulated. <laughs> um. Well, I, I, uh, I, I am a licensed clinical social worker. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, I was looking forward to meeting you guys. I didn't realize I was going to leave here healed. Uh, thank you. Well, Mac, thank you very much for joining us tonight. It's been really, really amazing to yeah, talk to you. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Do you uh, want to take a, uh, a prognosticator shot? Where are we going to be at the end of the season? God. I mean, you know, I've, it, this, this must be the hardest. I mean, I, don't, I haven't followed like the other teams as closely, of course, but I feel like every time you think you know something about where an Oriole team is headed, then you're wrong. Um, so, you know, fuck it. I'll just, uh, uh, just because actually what I'll do is I, um, I do have a, a superstitious streak in me, so I will predict, um, a fourth place finish and I will say we will finish three game. Is that possible? Is that mathematical? Three games over 500 in fourth place behind the, Rays, Red Sox, Blue Jays. Let's just put the Yankees in the cellar because it's fun. Um, but yeah, okay I, I will say, okay I'll say we'll be in fourth place, and um, I hope what I've said tonight 
means that stimulates the, act, the baseball the god exactly. yeah. in the correct direction. From, from so, your lips to God's bizarro right. ear. <laughs> you, you see what I'm doing. So yes, I mean, I am excited. I have um, my MLB app ready to go. <laughs> on on so I, I, we, we don't have a TV currently, but um, I yeah we'll watch uh, on my phone in the bathroom if I have to. <laughs> It's really horrible to say. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you again for joining us, and uh, I do charge uh, seventy-five an hour for <laughs> psychoanalysis. So, would you settle for a signed Eddie Murphy? Sold, sold by eleven glasses. <laughs> Right, ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, just about out of time. But you know, Sam, um, we have one, a couple, a couple more things to do before the end of this show because I, I was feeling pretty good after last week's episode. Pretty damn good. We talked to Andy Zaltzman. We've done a good show. Things were feeling, you know, like we were in a good place. But then I was sitting on my balcony in Brooklyn yesterday morning, and an exhausted and bedraggled pigeon collapsed into my lap, and this pigeon had a missive tied to its ankle meaning that we once again get to play Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego? Now remember, Baltimoreans, our former intern Scotty, who is still traveling around the world after graduating from high school, seems to have checked in with us once again because he wrote the following from Barun Urt in eastern Mongolia. The note, which I have here, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, so I'm hoping you might be able to clarify it for me, Sam. But I think it's addressed to you. There's this smudge that looks like the word Sam, and then it says, It wasn't alliteration that Alan did at the end of the intro. It was assonance, right? So, thanks for checking in, Scotty, and I wonder, Sam, if you could clarify this note. Uh, My first thought is that the word assonance is humorous because of the presence (laughs) of ass. Um, My second thought is that uh, I, I think Scotty's right about this. But but I you know I sort of feel like he he's privileging my perspective by saying Sam you should be correcting Alan ah. no Scotty you shouldn't be correcting either of us because you're the intern and we're the bosses <laughs> so you know maybe you know spend the money you spent on that carrier pigeon on a new pair of of world wandering sandals. <laughs> All right, kiddo. Well, it seems I mean, he's moved from Kuala Lumpur to uh, Mongolia, so he definitely seems to be getting the wandering thing down pretty good. Oh, Alan, Alan, I'm I'm really sorry to interrupt, but uh, I I have to tell you about a very urgent situation. Oh yeah, I just fired up our website, bemorons.com. The very same. Now, as you know, for many moons, our website, bemorons.com, has been, in a word, laughable. <laughs> Little more, Smith, than a poorly customized Tumblr page with links that are often broken and or pointing to the wrong place. Yes, I am, I am aware of this fact. Well, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but someone appears to have snuck into the Hootenanny Studios internet machine and replaced our formerly lame website with a new awesome website... One which looks cool and has tons of sweet features. But who would do such a thing? I don't know, Smith. <laughs> and I fear I'm unlikely to ever catch the scoundrel. 
as I'll be too swept away in the enjoyable task of browsing the intuitively organized and slickly presented Baltimoreans episode archives, or accessing the convenient and entertaining show information pages so that I can learn more about the Baltimoreans creative team, TM. Well, I will say this. Whoever this menace to society may or may not be, we should probably also thank Adam Gerber for his work on Photoshop. We probably should. We probably should. And, speaking of thank yous... Thank you to our guest earlier in the evening, Mac Montandon, for hanging out with us here at Hootenanny Studios, providing such a wonderful conversation for the episode, and a welcome reprieve from Sam's weekly ritual of forgetting how to wire up the phone for Skype interviews and referring to the necessary cables as quote-unquote Satan's dreadlocks. If Look, if he has them, they're shaped exactly like live wire quarter-inch stereo cables. Available at your local guitar center. <laughs> you can learn more about Mac's ill-fated tryout for the Orioles, as well as his work for Fast Company and Mental Floss, via the show notes for this episode at the aforementioned website, which is, once again, bemorons.com. Our program is written and produced by Sam Dingman and me, Alan Smith, and today we featured the music of Marshall York, who wrote and performed our theme song, Town Hall, whose tune, Working for Another Song, you heard leading into the Tito Landum franchise report. Weather Report, who performed the song Birdland, which we played between segments. And here, on the outro, is the sweet, sweet sounds of Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Alan, what do you call Henry Arudia when he's referenced in a physics textbook as a glass? Oh, oh would that be Henry Arudamorpheus Solid? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. <laughs> Would that be Henry Eurudia Morpheus Solid? Yeah. <laughs> so just stop kicking my heart around for the last time. Stop kicking my heart around. Well, I told you so. Now it's time to go. Got to get my Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.